Because it's new. It's not what you're expecting to hear. People don't see things because they don't expect to see them. Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. So with us today is Professor Dave Snowden. He's the founder of Cognitive Edge, known for rejuvenating management practices, addressing intractable problems, seizing new opportunities in complex situations. Professor Snowden uh, is said to have pioneered a science-based approach to organizations, drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complex adaptive systems theory. So welcome, and thanks very much for spending time with us today, uh, Professor Snowden. Pleasure. All right, so I'd like to talk about Cognitive Edge a little bit, if you don't mind. So when was Cognitive Edge founded? So I've come across blog posts as far back as 2010. They felt whimsy in nature they felt a little more personal and less uh specific like it felt like storytelling a little bit which i find very fascinating so can you tell us a little bit about cognitive edge and what it's here to do for us okay so i left ibm 16 years ago i think i've been there for about seven years they bought the company i worked for where i was in strategy and i got one of those interesting jobs which is do interesting things and we'll pay you a salary but not hold you to account so that that worked quite well but seven years was about the maximum and life was getting difficult and i'd done a lot of work with darpa on this is before and after 9 11 in the context of um intelligence and weak signal detection and counterterrorism, and that had picked up on both the kinevin framework National Security Advisor famously said when he first looked at it, that explains 50 years of failure in American foreign policy. I, we treat everything as complicated when it's complex. And that work then got picked up by the Singapore government, who tend to monitor DARPA programs, and I already had a relationship there. So basically, we got a big contract to build their risk assessment and a rising scanning system. And that was the contract I needed to set up Cognitive Edge. So we're still a Singapore-based company. Oh, interesting. So we already, I mentioned before, like I, we want to skip ahead. So Alex and I actually recorded a session or another podcast earlier where we did our best to describe Kinevin as a framework and for sense-making. So I'd like to talk about the value proposition and from the position like to, and the motivation is to actually motivate interest. So what do people stand to gain by subscribing to complexity theory and frameworks like Kinevin? If you look at the history of ideas, all right, scientific management sort of dominated from the 1920s to the 1980s and is actually much demonized by the IT community, which is stupid, really. There was a lot of value in scientific management. Uh, If you look at Denin and people like that. What then happens is systems thinking comes in, particularly systems dynamics and cybernetics. And that gets heavily popularized in things like business process, re-engineering, learning organization. Yeah, that's the hard and soft end. And virtually every one of the management movements over the last couple of decades has come from that theoretical background. And that went from 
wild academic idea to dominant way of doing things in three years. That this is what happens. Old ideas start to run out and you get this phase shift. Complexity is in a similar position at the moment. So we're now starting to, and complexity thinking is not the same thing as systems thinking. It's completely wrong to make it a subset because complexity deals with non-causal systems and is sometimes known as the science of inherent uncertainty. And so if you look what's happening now, so the European Union field guide to managing a crisis has been written from a Kinevin perspective. And that's a deeply pragmatic, it's a field book, right? We're doing a huge amount of work in the health sector at the moment around COVID in terms of managing real-time lessons learned and mental resilience. So it's kind of like, it's the same sort of phase shift. So if, if you want to be around, kind of like, if you want to be involved in the next wave, all right, complexity is now the next wave. Some of us have been knocking around for 20 years and that's about the right time for an idea to gain enough currency that it then flips in and becomes dominant. So I would expect, I mean, the EU field guide, for example, is really designed as the complexity alternative to Porter's five forces from which most strategy in the modern age derives. But Porter assumes causality. So I've, I've done the field book before I do the theory book, but it's the same sort of principle. The agile community makes extensive use of Kinevin and the next big movement there is Kinevin as a, as a multi-method framing. So how do you use methods from different ideas and different concepts and different backgrounds? And how do you get them to interact? So rather than the sort of Borg-like assimilation that you see with the safe nonsense, is starting to look at something which allows for a multi-method approach uh, and a multi-concept approach. Um, so with uh, frameworks like Agile, people I know people like think about stand-ups and Scrum ceremonies, so they don't may not necessarily think about like complexity and and Gnevin. Well, and if you go back to Ken's stuff on Scrum, you'll find complexity front and center. He, he uses Stacy's model originally, and just to be mildly controversial here, but this is kind of like people should use English properly. Scrum is not a framework; it's a collection of methods. Right. I mean, that's what it is. In Kinevian terms, the huge power of Scrum is it's a liminal technique between the complex and complicated. But it's not a true complex technique. And actually, you can't have techniques which work in different domains because they require different assumptions. So, for example, we're working on pre-Scrum tools at the moment. We've got three or four of those going out at the moment. I things you do before you even think about running a sprint. Yeah. And we're also looking at decomposition and recombination and bringing back some of the old DSDM stuff. When I was one of the three guys who set up DSDM many years ago, except we did it in a pub in Cheltenham over dinner rather than a ski resort over a week, but we were British and they were American. So we're bringing back some of the Rajad stuff as a sort of alternative to Agile, where you've got a degree of stability, right? And I think... Yeah, the Agile movement has become problematic because it's, it's surged around proprietary tools. It was actually, I mean, the whole reason it scaled, and there's a paradox here. I mean, XP is really the heart of Agile. Yeah, if, if you look at that, I mean, you know, Kent Beck and people like that. If you look at the Agile manifesto, you can see XP written all the way through it. But it doesn't scale until Scrum comes along. And remember, Scrum was there before the manifesto meeting. And the reason is Scrum is highly codified, highly structured, so it can scale, whereas XP isn't. And I remember saying this at a conference in Scotland, and people are still trying to work out who I was insulting, because I said, you know, Agile would have not scaled, you know, Agile should have scaled around XP because it that's authentic to Agile. 
but it scaled around Scrum. So all the Scrum people got irritated and the XP people got excited. And I say it could have never, it could have never scaled around XP because none of you are understandable to ordinary mortals. And they're still trying to work out whether they like that or not, all right, which tells you everything you need to know about XP. And that's just reality, all right? And then, of course, it was fairly inevitable that something like SAFE would come along. I mean, Dean got it wrong the first time around, but the second time around, he was built off a pyramid selling scheme. You know, if, if you attend and pay this course, I will allow you to run the course, even though you've got no experience. And it was just thrown together and cobbled together, and now you pay money every year to update it. And it, it keeps IT directors happy because they can say they're agile while taking what is a, such a structured technique. Yeah, it, it, our priority can't be. And that, that's what happens. I mean, this is one of the ways you know you should change things. So the same as Adeo started to codify and certify people in design thinking. The minute you get to that stage, something is re reaching the end of its life cycle um, because it's lost its ability to dynamically change. So I say that's that's one of the areas where Kinevin is used a lot and is talked about a lot. I mean, you've got Codefin, you've got this Kia's work, all of which is a really good adaptation or development of the framework to take a much more, I think, pragmatic multi-methods approach rather than a single structure. Are you worried at all that your work with Kinevin could kind of, I don't, I don't know if victim is the right word, but I think I, I saw there was some, like with, with the agile methodology and with Scrum, I, I, I looked at it more as tools or a tool set for, for how to organize around how we do work. And I remember, I don't know if in some of your talks, you seem to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there was like this position that the system was essentially over and, and it's, it was no longer performing the, the job it was intended to do broadly based on how it was marketed and these certifications and all that. Do you think that, um, do you worry at all that your work with Kinevin could eventually be, you know, codified in that way? And It might it might be. I'd have to be dead first, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we're doing a few things to prevent. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 67 in a couple of months' time, so I'm thinking about inheritance, yeah? Right. And, I mean, it's two or three things going on. One is now I have a, a large group of research assistants working with me. Who, who really are taking the idea forward and they're sort of coherent to the concepts, yeah? But they're working around it. So they're working in areas like government and health and abuse and climate change, right? So that's part of the inheritance is to build a, a tight enough community. And what we're launching next week, which is already in alpha, is we're moving all the methods and tools into an open source wiki. Oh, nice. Because if I open source it, then that prevents that type of behavior. And I think one of the big things which wrong, went wrong with Agile is people developed a method as a proprietary method. Now, Scrum actually did it quite right. They published the Scrum method and anybody could use it. Yeah, so they, they didn't try and hold it on, which I think is, is the way I'm going. And it's not without some internal opposition because people still think, you know, you don't make money at the moment. The way you monetize things is you go open space and then you make money out of access and artifacts. And you accept that other people may do both of those as well because that's how something spreads. So I, I made Kinevin open space when I was in IBM, still the best decision I made. I got you know, senior backup for it because then it's grown and people have used it and nobody feels they have to ask my permission first. And we, we trademarked it last year, but not to contain it, but to stop anybody else trademarking it. 
Yeah, so, so to preserve its community. So you're saying there's going to be no certification in Ganevin? If there is, it will be... I mean, there's some interesting stuff. If you look at the Flow Consortium stuff, right? They, they use Ganevin as one of their three pillars. But that certification is coming through the University of North Texas with all the university disciplines about qualifications. Yeah, and I'm working with them on that and in parallel with a master's program. Yeah. One of the things we're doing with the wiki, to be honest, is it allows us to measure whether people understand it. So if you can, if you don't contribute to the wiki, then you're obviously not interested. If every time you contribute, I revert you, then it's obvious you don't understand it. So we can actually start to create empirical measures. So we look at accreditation from time to time, but the one thing we will never do is allow you to put letters after your name after attending a two-day course <laughs> and filling out a multi-choice question from an open book exam over the next four weeks, all right? So if we do do it, and we are thinking about it, right, it will be based on participation in the wiki and proven ability to be peer-referenced. It will have links with university and university certification, yeah, of, of the material. It won't be cobbled together with some slide sets. And under no circumstances will you have to pay me money every year to read a slide set to keep your safe certification up to date. That's one of the problems with uh, uh, Agile is that got really commercialized, all the certifications and education, and people tried to do it by the book, really rigid. It's nothing but recipes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, we make a fundamental metaphor um, between a recipe book user and a chef. Mm -hmm. So nothing wrong with a recipe book user. I was one when I left home and went to university. But you're lost if you don't have the right ingredients and the right equipment. The chef can do whatever they, you know, whatever you've got in your kitchen, they can make a wonderful meal because they've got practice and they've got theory. And I think this is the thing, the anti-intellectual trend, right, within management is really dangerous. Because if you don't understand the theory, you can't scale. And you've got this complete misuse of the word empiricism, which in Agile actually means what I think I did on my last two clients that I think I can sell you as a certification scheme. That's what empirical means. Yet nobody does the research, nobody does the testing, nobody tests the core theory. So, I mean, my overall field of study is not complexity, it's called naturalizing sense making. Right? And anthro complexity is a part of that, along with narrative and, and other things. And it's now recognized in the literature of one of five schools of sense-making. But the key feature of it is that it uses natural science as a constraint and it doesn't use cases. So it basically says case studies are a waste of, you know, inductive thinking is a waste of time in anything involving humans because you can never capture enough data. This is my physics background, my degrees physics and philosophy. And from a physicist's point of view, no social scientist has ever had enough data to form any valid conclusion. And it doesn't overcome the bias and the perception. So we take a different approach. We say, what does natural science tell us about cognition, about systems? And, you know, that's been subject to third party review and repeated experiments. So we can rely on that. And then we construct methods and tools which are coherent with that theory. And then we refine them in practice. And that, that's actually a radically new approach. In conditions of a crisis, it's imperative because in a crisis, everything that worked before isn't going to work again anyway. Yeah. So again, that, that's kind of like a different approach. So that's the real field. And 
I define sense making as how do you make sense of the world so that you can act in it. So that carries with it an idea of sufficiency of knowing when you know enough to do something because you can never fully know things. It's it can be tricky because sometimes the the core foundation of an idea gets buried in like the marketing and codification provided by others or other organizations. And sometimes when we're first introduced to something, we think that is the source of truth when in reality it's inspired by something f further down the road. And um, I'm not sure why. Yeah, I, think you, um, I mean, I think one of the strengths of Kinevin is it's evolved. Mm. So it's 21 years old. Yeah, in fact, we, we published a book on that earlier on this year. So it was 21 years old this February. Yeah. Um, no, 21 years old January. All right. First, yeah. The first ever use of it in a publication. And the community got together and produced a book, which I didn't know about until it arrived at my window once morning, one morning, right? Which is nice. You can get it on Amazon. You can get a signed version if you want one. And I think if you look at the history of Canavin, and I wrote the history up for that book, they conned me into writing up the history. They didn't tell me they were going to build a book around it. You'll see that Canavin has changed continuously. I mean, it's more or less stable now. Uh, the, the, the last unresolvable things are there. But it's not a one-time model produced or released under version control. And I'm now working on what on the flexious curves model, which is a life cycle framing. And also the big one at the moment is entangled trios, which is how do you actually design informal networks? Yeah, as a large part of the formal system. Right? Because if you actually have a, a designed informal network, the formal system can be much lighter and much simpler. And, and that's a big piece of work at the moment. So in an article it, it, in, uh, you wrote with Mary Boone in 2007, this is going back a little bit. Yeah, a leader's remember. You remember that one? Oh, cover article. When, when I, I still remember where I was when I got the notes saying it's been selected as the cover article. Oh, I, was yeah. in, I was at Speak Airport in Liverpool. It was a very cheerful email. Though. So it was titled A Leader's Framework for Decision Making. I highly recommend it. It was an article actually I felt was very approachable from a naive perspective or someone who's just trying to get their mind into it. In that article, it was said that leaders who want to apply principles of complexity science to their organizations will need to think and act differently than they have in the past. This may not be easy, but is essential in complex contexts. So the question is, what is so hard about transitioning to thinking in complexity? Okay, I mean, that, that's actually derived from a quote from Lincoln, which is front and center in the European field, field book, by the way. It's a speech he made to Congress where he said, as the times are anew, we must think anew and we must act anew. And the key thought is think differently and act differently. So I think one of the issues people have got with complexity and what's interesting is we have no problem in our day to day lives. It's, it's why the children's party story is probably the best teaching story I've ever created because everybody can relate to it and everybody can understand complexity. But the minute we go into work, we switch into this highly ordered, highly structured recipe driven world in which we assume that we can predict the future. So it's not that we don't know about complexity, it's that we don't seek to apply it. So, I mean, I was at a board of a company the other day, well, actually more than a year ago now, because I haven't, you know, what, what's a client visit is, you know, it's just one of these strange things that I vaguely remember from the past, all right? And, um, it was kind of like, you know, you're in here because you're the expert in uncertainty and bang, 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 bang. So we go through this and we talk about process. And he said, okay, so can you give us 
three examples of what will get out of this process and where you've done it before. And I'm sitting there saying, but we've <laughs> just gone through this stuff, all right? Is you can't produce a determined outcome. You, it's, it's all about a process, all right? And um, it is fascinating on that. And I think there used to be an adage when I was in IT, all right? Nobody gets fired for buying IBM because they were the apex predator. And they didn't have the best kit. I mean, Debt was a damn sight better than the AS400, if you want my view. And the Digital Alpha was a damn sight better than the IBM PC, and God help us on their software. But if you bought IBM because they were so dominant, nobody was going to say that you got it wrong. Whereas if you bought better technology from a small supplier, you would get fired. And, and that's actually, people forget, this is a big motivational factor. What you've now got is nobody gets fired for implementing the McKinsey's report. Is people are displacing onto the big management consultancies their own personal risk. And the big management consultancies are all working on an industrial model. They're, the minute a ratio between partner and consultant goes be above one to seven, you're into a manufacturing framework, not an apprenticeship framework. And so the only way you survive in big consultancies is very large projects with lots of utilization. Yeah, um, because that's what the framework wants. So you want lots of people in there. And I, I mean, for my great privilege, I actually taught leadership with Peter Drucker for a few years um, while he was alive. And that was after I'd been ritually humiliated because I criticized Frederick Taylor on the stage when he was behind me. And if you've ever been taken apart by a 93-year-old genius, I was sort of a puddle of humiliation on the floor, but he decided to rescue me. Right? And I, I've since got quite pro Taylor. He was actually right. I, w I was, wasn't criticizing Frederick Taylor. I was criticizing systems thinking because that's when the rigidity came into the system. It, it, you know, Taylor was actually quite flexible yeah, in terms of the way it worked. And I remember once mischievously asking him, I knew what the answer was. So we were doing these high-level executive seminars. And, and by the way, that kept me going in IBM because there were some people trying to have me fired. And Lou Gerstner had just got this sort of brochure with me and Peter Drucker on the front of it as a personal invitation to come to a seminar. And he'd written on it, who is this person? He works for me. And, and two minutes later, the next meeting was, this is a bastard, we've got to fire him. So it, it kind of like played against them that, but it was, it was quite lucky. Right? But I remember asking him once, and I said, well, so what do you think the role of consultancies is? And he grinned all over his face and he said, to be a butterfly. You're there to fertilize, but not do the work. And that's the mistake the big consultancies have done. And to be honest, it's the big mistake of agile coaches. They're sort of going in to do the work for people rather than creating the capability for people to do the work for themselves. And we've always taken that in cognitive edge as an absolute paradigm. Yeah, our role is to mentor and train, but not to do. Now, is there, I'm hearing, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, because I was hoping we could talk about, I think it's a, another framework called scaffold or scaffolding. Yeah. And the way I heard you describe it was you determine the type of scaffolding that's possible, which I think is a very important way to phrase it, because that to me sounds like there's a feasibility check. Um, and then you allow or you create events or interactions within the scaffolding. Is there is that like the parallel of what you mean? Like if, if I was, because my next question was yeah. what is the future for management consultation and that's part of what the um the work we did on design thinking so there, there were three big things which came out of that uh, one is mapping unarticulated needs 
and the other is, the second was distributed ideation. So what Ideo does is expert ideation, expert ethnography. So we added to that an articulated needs, non-expert ethnography, and then you've got combinations. And the third component was the idea of scaffolding. So what you do is you create scaffolding, and we have a whole typology of these. Yeah? And then you define interactions around the scaffolding, and you see what emerges. Now, to me, that's the future of IT architecture. Because at the moment, you know, the, the users don't know what to ask for in IT because IT is moving faster than users can create demand. And also the speed of change is high and can never in a lot of IT development never leaves the complex space. Well, would you also agree that the technology is also moving faster than the, the engineering staff that's employing it can, can understand? I think to some extent, but I, th I think it, I mean, software is also becoming, um, to use a religious term, ineffable. Um, so you, you don't know the implications of something. You, I mean, nobody could understand the implications of Twitter, for example, or a hashtag. All right. So what it becomes important to do is to create a system which can evolve rather than a system which is engineered. And if I was, I mean, I, I wrote a paper for the, um, the Prince 2 guys yeah um the other day for their latest book yeah and it actually said no engineer should be allowed out without a full training in ethics and i was talking to a bunch of students yesterday and saying the same thing you should not be allowed out designing systems unless you understand ethics because the implications of what you're doing are huge so for example some of the work i did when i was in darpa was to find a way to create epistemically just and appropriate training data sets because AI is only only as good as its training data and the training and Google have finally admitted this right the training data sets all come from 30 year old misogynist males on the west coast of the states who take and run seriously after puberty uh, which is a sign of mental derangement right? it's been a bit extreme there but you get the point right that the bias is huge right so I, I th and that's where scaffolding comes in. So dependent on the level of certainty, you might have an, an external or an internal scaffolding. Um, the work I'm doing on entangled trios is actually an example of using scaffolding. So we use formal roles and we put them together in threes, in overlapping threes, so that we create a dense informal network, but it's linked into the formal system through the roles. So the formal system can react to the informal. Now that's an example of a scaffolding and the metaphor for that is microconsial fungi, which kind of like connect trees and provide nutrients. Yeah. Then you've got sort of resilient and robust scaffolding. You've got fixed scaffolding. So there's a typology of this and the principle is choose the scaffolding and then define interactions. This is going back to the good old days of object orientation. Now I remember when I was sitting on corporate committees back in the eighties, I remember arguing people are objects too. We need to define organizational units as objects with input, output, inheritance, and polymorphism and allow them to interact with the technology objects. Yeah, and then, then that's how we can architect whole companies. Yeah, and that, that to me, that's, that's the big thing still coming through. And you can see it being, people are starting to understand it. And it has consequences. So, for example, you stop talking about individual leaders and you have crews. And the military have known about that for years. You know, there's always a pilot, but who the pilot is can change. Yeah, so people are trained in role and role-based definition. 
So I think there's there's some massive changes coming on this, and I think the COVID stuff will accelerate it. Uh, particularly being as this is COVID isn't the worst plague we're going to see in my lifetime. As I say, I'm coming up to 67. There's going to be worse coming. And that's before we get onto climate change. And, you know, the, the, the concept that neoliberal market capitalism can cope with something like COVID has just gone out of the window over the last year. Yeah, you need state actors on massive scale. Yeah. So I, I think there's a hell of a lot is going to change over the next two to three years. And basically, complexity gives us a theoretical framing for conditions of extreme uncertainty, whereas systems thinking actually assumes you can determine certain. You can you can take a you can assume you can know the system. Right. Yeah. Where actually complexity deals with systems which are a priori unknowable until you act in them. Um, I want to go back uh, a little bit to decision making. So uh, I think it's been, I'm, I'm part of it. So I'm, I'm going to use myself as an example. So I used um, what worked for me in the past. And I usually, it, it becomes part of my intuition to make decisions in the future. And this framework goes a little bit against that. So how do you change people mindset? Actually, it's worse than that because you're not even remembering it perfectly. If you succeed, you'll remember things differently than if you fail. So the way you actually make decisions, given your ethnic background, is you'll scan about at the most 5% of the available data, and then that will trigger a series of memories, and you'll blend them together and do a first-fit pattern match. And in evolutionary terms, most of the times that will work. Yeah, make decisions very quickly, privilege on your most recent experiences. I mean, that's the hunter-prey type thing. Uh, the trouble is that means you miss stuff. So the one I always quote at conferences is if you give radiologists a set of x-rays, ask them to look for anomalies on the final x-ray is a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% don't see it. And the 17% who do come to believe they were wrong when they talk with the 83%. So I often start off with that. And I say, you know, you're a senior leader. Sorry, guys. What are you missing? Yeah. And... It's interesting. I mean, one of the key heuristics in the European Union field guide is if you're a leader in a crisis, distribute the decision making, centralize the coordination, because actually you can't afford to make a bad decision because people will lose confidence. And you're not in a position to make a decision anyway, because there's just too much data. But your job is to coordinate and present. And some of the stuff we do there, for example, this is software is we'll present the situation to, say, your entire workforce, say 20,000 people. They all interpret that into what's called high abstraction metadata, which is ungameable. You, you can't have gameable input on metadata. And then you get a picture which shows you the 17%, and that's all done within 10 minutes. So that's distributed situational assessment. Yeah. And what you then start to do is say, okay, you guys look at it, you guys look at this because you've got an objective basis. And you coordinate and link and connect. And if you're really good at this, you actually never make a decision because you're steering the ship. Yeah. And I think I think that's important to understand. And I think it, it's quite interesting. It's it's sometimes I mean it was a job I was given by John Poindexter when I went to work for him in DARPA when I was in IBM. And this is an ex-national security advisor. And he said, what I need is the problem of abduction. So abductive logic is sometimes done logic of hunches. Yeah, so before a major terrorist outbreak, somebody will always spot what was happening, but nobody pays attention to them. 
And after the event, everybody celebrates, said we should have listened to this person. Now, the reality is, I mean, this is joining up the dots, all right? If I have four dots and I join them up, there are 64 possible patterns. If I go to 10 dots, there are the 3.6 trillion patterns. So, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I can always join the dots, but I can't do it in advance. So the problem I got given and spent ooh, six, seven years of my life working on is how do you actually objectify abductive leaps of intuition? And that's what we do with this mass sensing capability. So you, you, you get a culturally diverse group without connection to assess something in ways that they can't game at a high level of abstraction, because if you go up a high level of abstraction, you get more objectivity, a bit of a paradox. And then as a leader, you can see the dominant views, the minority views, yeah? And you can start to delegate within that and then see what happens. So it's a different way of thinking. Interesting. And so this, this framework scales really well on a large scale, on uh, education and uh, politics and COVID coordination, how does it scale on this like small scale on that like team of like, let's say 10 people and there is a manager a leader that tries to make decisions and coordinate uh, this decision-making? It's the same principle. I mean, Kinevin is used in scrum teams in retrospectives. It's also used in personal one-to-one -one coaching. I mean, the, the essence of Kinevin, there are three ontologies in Kinevin. There's, there's order, complex and chaotic. And those are pretty fundamental and they have a phase shift between them. So it's, it's a rather like um, solid, liquid and gas. Um, there's phase shifts between them and there is a triple point where, where something can go in any direction. So if you look at Kinevin, that's what it is. The central zone is a triple point. I mean, we just happen to break order into two, clear and complicated because that's based on perception. So that can work at any level. Yeah, it's kind of like, where is it? What do we do? Where are we trying to get to? It's a question you can ask about yourself, about your team, about the problem you've got. You can ask about the whole of society. Yeah. I mean, and the, the reason is it's natural science, all right? Those three, and you ignore plasma, but it doesn't occur in human systems. But those three are fundamental properties. Order, complexity, chaos is, is not a social construct. It's reality. And by the way, I'm a realist and a materialist in philosophical terms like most people in complexity. I mean, so social constructivism and critical realism kind of like deserves each other. There's a special place in heaven where they'll, they'll be put to continue a meaningless argument for the rest of their lives. Right? Sorry, purgatory. Going back to that article, another, another part from that was leaders who understand that the world is often irrational and unpredictable will find the Kinevin framework particularly useful Question, could you elaborate more on what is meant by understanding the world is irrational and unpredictable and what has happened that this is otherwise not our default position? There's actually quite a good phrase on this. Um, John C. D. Brown is a good friend. Yeah, He wrote a, a blurb and introduction to the Kinevin, Kinevin book. And he said, we've moved from enlightenment to entanglement, which is a really good phrase. Because what you've actually seen for most of the last two or three centuries is enlightenment assumptions of human rationality. And the kind of assumption, if we only train people properly, or we only explain things to people properly, they would all make the right decision. Peter Sanghi and Otto Scharmack are particularly prone to this. And it's, it's, it's a modern form of neo-colonialism. It's kind of like, you know, we think our culture is supreme. This is the way we do it. So everybody should do it like us. And the reality is that's not how people make decisions. They do a first fit pattern match with half remembered experiences. 
they get sucked into what are called uh, assemblages or attractor wells of micro-narratives. This will happen to Trump supporters and also happen to liberals, by which they can't escape from that dominant pattern. So everything gets perceived through it, uh, which is why you know people like me basically say, for God's sake, please stop talking about mental models. It's just specious nonsense. All right, and it gives you the wrong framing for the problem in the first place. So fundamentally, we are pattern-based intelligences. We evolved to make decisions in clans, not as individuals. The sort of dominant atomistic assumptions of Northern Europe and North America, which come from Protestantism and the Reformation and the rise of capitalism, are flawed. Um, you know, our identity is derived from our interactions, not from what we are. So that is just reality. It's and the sooner you re the sooner you get you recognize reality, the better your decision making is going to be. Right? And that's key. So if you want to influence a population, don't just go and keep telling them what they should think. Yet yeah, change the way in which they are, interact so the dispositional state changes. I mean, we're currently waiting to hear on what would be a huge contract for us if we get it, which is post-election peace and reconciliation in the states. Now, these things hardly ever come off, but if they do, they're big. If that's the case, we'll be looking at micro-narratives on a micro-community basis. And then looking at what are the common patterns in the micro-narratives between red and blue in order to initiate dis different discussions. But we won't talk about the main problem. So, And this is actually down to scalability and problem-solving in complex adaptive systems. Yeah, you scale by decomposition and recombination. So you never stay at the surface level, you never try right. You decompose to the lowest level of coherence, then you recombine. Yeah. And again, once you understand this, I mean, Anne Pendleton Julian, who's another good friend, wrote a brilliant book on design again with John Celia Brown. She says, we live in a white water world. Right. If if you're a whitewater kayaker, you're completely comfortable. If you if you don't know what you're doing, you you die. Right. So it's not you know we, we've got lots of patterns on this. My hobby is a, a you know long distance road cycling. So I you know I don't get the bike out for less than fifty kilometers. Right. And normally I'm doing a hundred. And if I go walking in the hills, I, I really like dust to dawn walks, and that includes summer. Yeah. So I'm, I'm endurance. Right. Um, and I'm comfortable doing that. I've got the right equipment. I was up Helvellyn the other day before lockdown. I've got crampons. I've got an ice axe. I'm fine, right? And I can handle the uncertainty because I've trained for it. I've got the experience. I've got the right equipment. And I think that's where we need to go on this. And that means the experience element is also key. I mean, that, that's why the trivialization of training courses at the moment in Agile is appalling. Yeah, I mean, it, human knowledge actually takes two to two and a half years to internalize itself. That, that's the science. Yeah, All you can assimilate in a two-day course is some information, and that's not the same thing. Right. So for someone listening to this conversation and wanted to better understand Kinevin and complexity, where could they start or what's a good starting place? Yeah, several ways. I mean, first of all, read the articles. I mean, the vast majority of people who use Kinevin have never been trained by us. And I'm actually very proud of that. If you, if, you, if you look on Google Scholar, it was simple enough for people to pick it up and they may not use it perfectly, but it's got that sort of utility. So most people can do that. Yeah. Um, the and children's through, party. Store. And I'm sorry. And, and that's from the Cognitive Edge website or? No, you, you've got the Harvard article. 
yeah. You've got um, several, I, mean, I wrote a, a major book chapter for naturalizing decision-making, so there's material. If you go onto the wiki, I mean, so the wiki for me is big, and I, I've fought for that for two years now, and I've, I finally just, to be honest, been fairly a, a bit of a bully over putting it up, if I'm honest, right? So what you'll find there is a complete list of publications, and I say all the methods and tools and the frameworks are moving into that wiki, so come and, get, come and dive in, get involved, right? As Cognitive Edge, we run, well, we've got two groups. We've got Cognitive Edge, which is commercial. We've got the Canavan Centre, which is not-for-profit in government. Both of us run foundation courses and more advanced courses, and you can see those on the website. So that that's training, all right? We, we won't give you any little letters after your name, and if you really need it, we'll give you a certificate of attendance, but not a certificate of competence, all right? And join the community. And I think, you know, if you're in Agile, look at things like Liz Keogh's work. I mean, she's done some powerful work with Kinevin. And that was after one 10-minute conversation we had at a hotel in Reading. Yeah? And uh, Kinevin, is, it, it's a principle I've got. If you can't draw something on the back of a table napkin from memory, it has little utility for humans. All right? So everything I do is designed that you can draw it on the back of a table napkin from memory. Mm. I Which, if you think about Safe and Scrum, it's designed to force you to use somebody else's framing. Right. If you can just draw it and talk about it, that's different. I have to be honest, the shape of the, the Kinevin symbol or the map, um, I see it like a little bit different here and there. And I think it was, uh, you mentioned them earlier. I just had their their document up, but it looked like the there was like a, an additional like line that swooped through complexity complicated yeah that's the liminal line that the two that i put that in 2019 that's really important Mm. so that that created four liminal spaces or or states of suspended transition can you describe that a bit more okay so you've got liminal complex to complicated so basically you're in the car that's where scrum works Mm-hmm. Right, so you, you've got you've got an idea of what you do, but you go through a series of iterations to get it right. That's not true complex. So one of you know, let's take a complex system design method. We put together young programmer, systems architect, user trained to talk with IP people, talk to IT people. It's a lot easier to train users to talk to IT people than the other way around. Right, for various cognitive reasons. Right. Um, so that's a trio. I throw 15 trios at a problem over two weeks and see what they produce. And then I select that and put it into Scrum. Right? So that's a complex system technique because it's multiple small parallel experiments which are largely designed to fail, but to reveal what's possible. Yeah. So that's the liminal complex to complicated. And that's where most agile tools sit Yeah, and their power. You've got the liminal um, complex into chaotic. So that's where you deliberately create a system where everything is disconnected from everything else. Right? Because that's what chaos is. It's no constraints. That's what I talked about in distributed decision-making. So you present the same data to a thousand people. They can't talk with each other. You've then effectively created a normal distribution rather than the Pareto distribution. So you can trust the, trust the statistical results. Yeah. Then you've got the... Um, liminal area within um, confused, that central domain. Mm-hmm. That's called apparatic. And that means you've created a state of deliberate confusion. You, you know you've got to think differently before you exit. 
And then there's this really interesting little one, which is in the complicated domain, which is where you've got different groups of experts fighting between themselves. You know, one of them's right, but you don't know which one. Right. Like epidemiologists against behavioral scientists. And we have a whole method around that called the trioptican, which is a for, which is a, a, a complex dance in which the experts are forced to interact with each other and with more naive people so that the decision maker can see what's possible. Hmm. So that sounds like, I mean, f getting into the applied science, like it could be two PhDs arguing over whose algorithm is better. Yeah, well, we don't do it. We always put threes. Mm -hmm. you, you never want binaries. It's, it's something I've talked about with Richard, you know, the, the pioneered pair programming. Mm -hmm. Threes are better. Right, because it's it's like if you go out for a meal with one stranger, you've got a massive amount of stress. With two strangers, you can relax at times. Mm. Yeah. I I so heard you say that before. You, I wrote that down. I thought that was really important. Yeah. So th three gives you diversity, right? In 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 terms of the way it works, right? And that's that's what we're doing. For example, on the pre scrum technique, is putting people together from different backgrounds. In tangled trios, this has been worked through in Florida in some detail on a major test at the moment at a community intervention level. So we've defined 20 roles like police chief, teacher, social worker. So those are part of the formal system. Then we design a primary coupling, so a teacher with a social worker, and they can choose who their third is from the other list. So we have a series of primaries, they choose a tertiary. And then we give them software to do daily journal keeping and lessons learned, which creates an obligation. That creates a narrative database, which sits across all the trios. And this is what we mean by entangled trios. So now we're building peer-to-peer -peer interaction between roles, which is task-based. So we're not just relying on who you meet and who you decide to get on with. There's a task focus here. But then the formal roles are interfaces with the formal system. So if something starts to go wrong, the formal system can respond at a micro level before it becomes a macro problem. Now, we're looking at that in Britain at the moment to deal with the mental health disaster, which is about to hit, because if yeah, the, the formal system cannot cope with volume anymore. So if we can increase peer-to-peer -peer interaction, we can reduce volume and we can increase the number of micro interventions rather than macro interventions. And that that's, this is kind of like deeply pragmatic approaches to complexity, right? So when we have three competing experts, what we do is the first expert presents, yeah, and then the other two respond. Right? That's it. So you're not allowed to be interrupted and you can't interrupt or respond. Yeah? Sitting around them, basically a whole bunch of people who are less expert than the three main guys, but know the field. And they go away in small groups of three and discuss it. And then one from each group sits in a circle and discuss what they discussed with the experts listening on. Yeah, repeat twice. Second time around, second expert presents. And so everybody at some stage sits and have a conversation. And then you recombine the groups across the trios to come up with solutions. All right, now that's extremely successful because it is a conflict reduction device as well. Um, but it forces people into listening as well as speaking and arguing. Yeah. So if I'm one of the main experts, after I presented, I've got two days where I'm not allowed to say anything, just listen to what people are doing with my ideas. Is that, would you call that an enabling constraint or a governing constraint? It's an enabling constraint, right? The time might be governing. And that's called trioptican. If, if you search on the website, you'll find that. And again, I've got to get that doc. I've got to, 
I tend to develop my ideas on the blog in open source so everybody can see them. Mm-hmm. My colleagues occasionally Thank get annoyed you. with me for that. But they've sort of given up because they've realized, well, the famous phrase is, oh, that's just Dave being Dave, which I've decided I can live with, even though it irritates the hell out of me. So basically that stuff is being cut and pasted across, put across into the blog. So there's actually, sorry, into the wiki. So there's actually a nice job for people who want to learn this stuff. We really need some people who go onto the wiki and take the stuff which experts have put in and format it and structure it and make it intelligible. That's a really good way of learning something and also of paying back to the community. Oh, absolutely. And you said that's Trioptican? Trioptican is that method. If you search on my blog, you can find that of the entangled trios is fully defined in the second of two articles, which are, uh, microconsia, the, 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 the fungal, they're, they're, that's in the name. Sorry, I, I tend to get carried away with names. It's okay. Yeah, so uh, we have a phrase in Wales, all right? English is too good for the English. <laughs> I, I mean, all of, their, all of their poets and playwrights are either Welsh or Scottish or Irish. And if you didn't know, Shakespeare had a Welsh grandmother, so we're claiming him as well. Right? <laughs> and the English language is far too rich not to use it. And so... You'll find in the blog, I deliberately throw in words from different fields and that they're designed as cognitive triggers. Mm. So you can't, you can't just relax and carry on and assume you know it. You go, what the hell has he said this time? And as far as I can see, if a blog post sends people scurrying off to the internet to find out what the hell I'm talking about, then they're going to listen better. And my, latest, my latest one on leadership, I've gone back to 18th century theology in the, in the language, just to make another point. But, so you mentioned contribution and folks giving back. Is that through the, the wiki platform that's yet to come? Yeah, the wiki is going to be the main way that happens now. I'd say I'm, I'm, it's been a few years, but we're now pushing that up. Mm. All the methods are on it. There's some controversy about whether the course content should be up on it. I think we should put all our courses on it as well. Mm. Because I think peer review, uh, you, you can't protect IP anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've just spent a ridiculous amount of money on lawyers in the state, so I've just had enough of it. I mean, we finally won damages last week, and that, that's a huge relief. But one of the things it taught me is just throw everything in the open domain, make sure everybody knows you created it. Because if you put it behind firewalls, people can pretend they co-invented it and move faster. And that means moving in community. Yeah? And to be fair, I mean, the Canavan Network has been hugely loyal. Um, over the last two or three years, you know, as we went through a lot of different, you know, people basically stole from us. And the network's been loyal and stayed with us while we did it. And I think that's what you build if you build a community and you build openness. You, you don't want a commodity relationship with your market. Right? And that's a big mistake Agile have made. Most of their relationships are commodity relationships. Sounds like an enabling constraint. You just enable people to know who you are and then follow that yeah and i think but it's also you you, what you also do is catalyzing your your i mean i've got a lot of stuff swirling around in my head and when when i launch it is based on when the dispositional state is ready to receive it and sometimes i mean there's some stuff i'm blogging now i first blogged eight years ago it didn't take off so i didn't develop it and now i'm coming back to it including interestingly some of the original knowledge management stuff I'm bringing back two or three of those frameworks because they're more relevant now than they were 30 years ago. Actually, um, I'm very grateful for, I mean, at least the, the, the content from 2010, I started, I'm actually trying to 
see how maybe you've maybe adjusted language or introduced concepts or maybe what's inspired you along the way to help shape the conversations and the style of terminology that you you there's some papers on that. I turned up to give a lecture at Auckland University on, on complexity in Kinevin and discovered the entire class had just spent the last two years studying complexity in Kinevin. And I was sat there and they were saying, and of course, you base this on so-and-so. And I think, well, no, I've never read that. Could you tell me the paper? Because I need to look it up. <laughs> what do you think about the, uh, the adoption rate of, of this framework is uh, this way of thinking, just in general? It's... Um... It's been bigger than I thought it would be. I had no idea it can ever get. I mean, it's now used. If you if you want to get to colonel level in any of the U.S. Armed Forces, you have to learn Kinevin. Oh yeah, it's it's on this course. I teach at Quantico. I've taught at West Point. Right. If you look at Team of Teams, McChrystal used Kinevin in Afghanistan, and Kinevin is all over the second book. Yeah. Do a search on Google Scholar. I'm yeah, so you're, you're, I'm you're, You'll find a huge amount of applications and pickups. So something's wrong, I think, because like management style of command and control and some folks like or leaders that I've met, uh, at least along my, my journey, seem to be, they use the term militant. But the way you described like Kinevin is a part of military yeah, education. The military, the, the military, I mean, the, the military aren't command and control. Military are very flexible. Right, exactly. So yeah, People the, don't get this right. They're, they're damn set more flexible in industry. I mean, a weapons sergeant can outrank a general in respect of their weapon. You'd never see that in industry. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I mean, I, I taught just war theory at West Point, right? Because the only people who know about just war theory are those of us who are Catholic Marxists back in the 70s because we had to justify shooting the bastards come the revolutions that we went back to Aquinas. So this was the 70s, all right? So I, I, mean, I taught it with Marxist textbooks and they're the brightest students I've ever had. And I love the guys because they genuinely worry about killing people because they're going to have to do it. Yeah, they think about ethics a damn sight more than the people who send them into the field. And they worry about it more. You, you go and talk to the Marines at Quantico, right? I mean, I, I know a couple of sergeants there. Half their pay is still going to people they met when they were on duty in Philippines because they created a relationship with a family because they were ordinary Joes like them. Do people get this wrong? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple other things I wanted to just get some foundation on. Uh, so the SenseMaker application. So it's uh, the application called SenseMaker. It's paired with the Kinevin framework. It's described as an application that enables organizations to better dis to understand the environment in which they work. It accomplishes this by gathering micro-narratives of day-to-day -day conversations along with answers to questions about shared micro-narratives. I've seen you use data from SenseMaker in your talk from one year ago dealing with unanticipated needs. How are people typically introduced to sen the SenseMaker application, and how do you expect people to adopt it in the sense-making process? It's um, I several features on it. It's actually a different way of doing lessons learned. For example, we're deployed with medical staff at the moment because you want to get lessons learned in the field and the fire. You don't want retrospectives. Mm. About retrospectives, by the way, are really bad cognitive neuroscience. You should capture lessons learned as they happen. You shouldn't be allowed to wait a bit and then go into a meeting and present them. Right? And basically, so people can take a picture, record a voice or type or any combination and then just slam it into four triangles and we've got the data. Right? It's also an epistemic justice issue. So if I look at the work we've done, is it allows people to interpret their own narratives. 
right? Now that's actually key because the power comes from interpretation, not from the original narrative. And I wrote a blog post on this, which is called Big, Thick and Rich. And it, I couldn't resist that because I, I picked up this article about big data and thick data, which was uh, ethnographer trying to justify why they had a role in the future. And so big data is big and doesn't has low meaning. Yeah, we produce thick data, which is time and low volume, but has high meaning. You need both. And I remember looking at this and saying, "Well, we do rich data." And I suddenly, you know, I was reading Trump's tweets that morning. So big, thick, and rich kind of like came together quite well. And um, so that was the blog, right? And basically, rich data is large volumes of human interpreted, not algorithm interpreted data, which means we can take photographs as well as text. And what you can write down is 10% of what you know. And that actually also creates training data sets. So that's used to map culture, to map lessons learned, to map response. We use it operationally in Afghanistan to replace company commanders' patrol reports. They could just keep their observations in the field as they went through. That gave us real-time data over multiple observers, which increased our ability to spot IDs and things like that. It's also the software under what I've talked about of um, distributed decision support. Present the same data to a 1,000 people. They place it into six triangles, which have equally positive labels. So they don't know what the right answer is. That creates a cognitive load. They think deeper you can trust the results. So that's what SenseMaker, SenseMaker does a few other things as well, but that's what it's fundamentally about. Is there a, do you have a product roadmap? Do, are there any updates or features or is it? Yeah, 2.2.4 is going to be released next week, um, which is a major release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we've got Project Triven on the, on the skates at the moment, which is our major rewrite. And I decided if Steve Jobs could name software after cats, I could name it after Welsh mountains where I've had near fatal accidents. I've so seen I'll, both I'll photo. Yeah, it's Project Trevor. Yeah, the Red Door on Triven was the best tweet I've ever thought of. All right, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about that all the way down before I had eight stitches. So, and that that's a major change, and I can't really talk about it except under a day. But I've been working on that for about five six years. So, SenseMaker is linked in with. Knabin isn't dependent on SenseMaker or vice versa, but they come from the same theoretical base. And I can, people, we can, I saw uh, SenseMaker on the App Store. Is that, is that the intended consumption and use of it? Yeah, that's it. And then Triven will be even more so, right? So but at the moment when we're doing lessons learned and we're, we're about to launch this for the health sector worldwide, right? Which is uh, taking the work we've already done and creating a version of the app that people can use to capture lessons learned in hospitals during COVID. Yeah, because it's critical we capture those lessons learned now. And what's interesting is we can use the way they signify it to identify mental health issues. So you don't do well-being surveys. You, you basically see the pattern in something which people see as having utility, i.e. lessons learned. Got one on climate change on the website. We're actually just launched a new project called Numinous, Mm. which is looking at the varieties of spiritual experience. So we're doing some quite interesting things. Right? At the same time as we're looking at climate change, we're deployed with the Lutheran Church in the USA, and we're about to launch a fascinating public project. And then we'll present a different parable every month and ask people to tell a story about what they think it means for their environment. So we're starting off with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then we're moving on to a Sufi story from Islam, which is the story of a wise fool, the Munad al-Shadeen. 
and onto an indigenous parable from Australia, and we're moving through those. So every month, a different parable from a different religion in narrative form for people to gather stories about what it means and interpret. So we're having fun doing lots of interesting things like that. The stuff we did on micro-narratives about climate change is also critical because until people can see a small difference they can make in their own life, yet no amount of Paris Accords will make any difference. Although, of course, you shouldn't put the people of Paris before the people of the USA. I'm, I'm still giggling about that one. Right? Did you hear That's that? That's funny. Yeah. That was Ted, Ted Cruz. He, he obviously had Paris Accord and he decided that, you know, the people, I mean, the people of Paris, it's like, you know, well, you know, don't, don't talk about the Geneva Agreement and, and prisoners of war, right? So, so um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about complexity. I mean, we've been talking a lot about complexity, but um, would you agree that thinking complexity is a discipline? Yeah, I think all thinking is a discipline. That's fair. Um, I think part, part of the problem we got at the moment is we lack generalists. People become over-specialized too early. And, and the story I always, always tell, when I went up to grammar school, as it was then, right? in, in Britain, when I was growing up, you basically did an exam at 11, and you either went into an academic school or a non-academic school, which had positives and negatives. So I'm, I'm in the academic school at the age of 11, and I'm now allowed to wear long trousers. We weren't allowed to wear long trousers until we reached the age of 11. Um, which if you ever saw the British winter of 1964 and you had to walk three miles to school in shorts, you would know just how the, this, this bread, bread of stuff, as they say. Right? And um, I got given, I had to walk to the front of the class and was given a, a record card and it said, you support capital punishment. And I had to speak for seven minutes without preparation on something I profoundly disagree with. And we did that every week from 11 to 18. Right now, that was that's to me a really important thing because what the process did is it made us hypercritical, and it also made us generalists. But you know what? You're going to get hit with, so you read everything you could. Right? We didn't get taught to be critical. We had a educational process through which we became critical. Yeah. Now you mentioned discipline, and that's really important. If you look at the way that professions develop. They have disciplines of practice from which people learn things. And the educational system has got to express it. And also people now do things inside those. So my kids did module, you know, get past the module, move on to the next module. You know, we did exams in everything in one nightmarish two weeks at the age of 16 and 18. But it meant you had to retain all of the knowledge and you could then do the synthesis, right? So, there isn't a generalist left in Britain under the age of 55. And that's a real problem in a crisis because in a crisis, God, do you need the generalists? And generalists aren't T-shaped. That's the, the neo-generalist argument I complete is they aren't T-shaped because if you know one subject in depth, you will privilege that. A generalist knows a little bit about a lot of things and not much about any of them. And that's actually a fairly important skill. You don't want too many of them, but they're absolutely critical. And there's very few of us left who can do it. Right, well, and for me, I mean, I'm also partly dyslectic, right? And it, it goes with dyslexia because I just can't understand why people haven't seen the connection between things. So sometimes when I'm writing the blog, I'll miss out whole sentences because I've just made the leap. 
And if the spell checker doesn't pick it up, well, I don't pick it up because I just don't see it. Yeah. But then I can't see why people didn't combine cognitive anthropology with complexity before. I was the first person to do it. For me, it's just, well, this is obvious. You know, what, what's the issue? Yeah. You, um, there's a couple of networks or terms that involve networks that I was hoping we could uh, maybe clarify just a little bit. And uh, I'm just going to jump right into them. So you mentioned um, the informal network. You've also associated that with uh, nutrients in the soil to allow for growth. Could you describe like the informal network and its? Yeah, it's not so much nutrients. If you actually look in the soil, I mean, that, that's the problem. People thought they could replace it with nitrogen fertilizers. The reality is you've got fungus which, which, whose plants spread through the soil connect tree roots and have a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, so the tree gives them saccharose, they give it nutrients, all right? So to my mind, in an organization, the informal network is like that fungus. It's beneath the surface, it's deeply entangled, it's not explicit, but it keeps the system together. And interestingly, the first really big article on Kenevin, the first articles on Kenevin were on innovation, but the first major one, first prize-winning one, was about the balance between informal and formal networks in IBM. And that's that's um, called Complex Acts of Knowing, which is the ninth most cited paper of all time in knowledge management, which I'm quite proud of. Yeah, um, Not because it's a brilliant paper, because it was first to use complexity. So everybody references it if they want to talk about complexity. But that identified the ratio between formal and informal in IBM was 1 to 64. And that was only people who used technology. And I still remember going to the IBM Chief Knowledge Office from doing that, and she said, well, how do we make them formal then? And it was, you're missing the point. In informal communities, take very little energy. The issue is you have to create points in which they can communicate with the formal system. Yeah, And that's what I've been designing ever since. So social network stimulation was the first on that. Entangled trios is another. Yeah, Because if you just allow them to happen naturally, you get old boys clubs. Yeah. And, and that's what you're trying to break. So I, a lot of our work, and, and this is actually complexity, we design the ecosystem. We don't, and, and, and the, the blogs, I'm, I'm writing a big blog about leadership at the moment, which I'll go back to after this. Yeah. So two days ago, I wrote all the things you shouldn't do in leadership, which is upset all the right people. And now I'm writing what you do do. And one of the things is, and this is Stan McChrystal's point, right? you're not there to make decisions. You're there to create an eco ecosystem in which the right decisions will be made for you. Right? And if you've got a dense informal network that you can connect with, that's a radical risk reduction measure. But it doesn't have to be... A, I've sometimes used the phrase, the tyranny of the explicit. And you see this with the whole... I mean, psychotherapists are really bad at this. And I'm... I'm very dubious about any therapeutic technique being brought sideways into organizational coaching because it kind of like implies you need therapy and it privileges a therapist. Yeah? And you know, they're always talking about hidden motivations and authority and power and stuff like that. The reality is if you change people's interactions, everything changes. Yeah? And it's moral to change how things people interact, but it's not moral to tell people what sort of person they should be. Right. Well, man, I'm, we only have like five minutes left here and I wanted to talk about distributed human sensory network, but maybe mm -hmm. I'll have to. We have talked about that a bit. That's the um, where you use the whole of your workforce mm. All the stuff we've done in Wales and Malmo where you use children's ethnographers to their community from schools every week. 
And and that that actually is that's key because the problem we got with the internet is this unbuffered feedback loop. And the problem with unbuffered feedback loops is they always become perverted. So what we're doing with things like children in schools and sports clubs is to put human buffering into the primary data capture. Yeah. And and that you can't gain that. You you can't generate it like you can you use tweet farms and stuff like that. So again, that that's that's a government level human sensor network. So I wrote about because I put a paper in on we were trying to get somebody to fund it. It was only a few million, which was we wanted every school in the world to send every sixteen year out to capture stories every month. And we already proved we could do it in Egypt, in Afghanistan, in Britain, in Colombia, in Malmo. So we proved the concept, right? And I said, if we ever get a major plague, we'll need it. Because you need to communicate through, it's now the principle in the EU feedback, you communicate by engagement. Yeah, everybody's trying to communicate more effectively. I is push. If you engage people in the situational assessment and the ideas generation, then the communication is more effective. And, and that's a human sensor network. But you have to build networks for ordinary purpose that you can then activate for extraordinary need. Yeah, and and that you don't, don't just assemble them in the crisis. They need to be operating for some. It's it's called radical repurposing. You need a network which is already in place, which you can activate. And at the prosaic level, I've done that in companies where we needed to get cross silo working. So I, I still remember doing this. This was a huge company. We got everybody to say which football club they supported, and we put them into teams based on that because they have that in common. So if somebody supports the same club as you, you tend to trust them. And they, it was a way of getting a coherent group across silos. But that, that's theory-informed practice. You know the theory, so you ask yourself the question, and then you can discover the practice. You're not looking to what somebody else has done to copy. You're saying, what does the theory say about this that you can do and not do? Right, okay, now, what can I do consistent with that? And that really is scientific management. You mentioned uh, there's an intelligence that can be baked into human sensory networks. Like uh, yeah. used the uh, story about Napoleon and heuristics and how like you can have people that are- Yeah, the march to the sound of the guns, yeah. Or the American Marines, if in doubt, capture the high ground, stay in touch, keep moving. Right. And as like we're, we're wrapping up here, it just feels very far away from being something like I could not leverage, but- like like thinking as someone like if you have the opportunity to develop or identify that as, as a strategy to help move a system in a, in a general direction. Kinevin helps you on that because if it's complex, you know you can't control it any other way. And what we do is we look at the existing heuristics in micro narratives. We cluster, codify, and attach them to teaching stories. Mm. And then you propagate it very quickly. You say, you know, if, if the, the plan breaks down and you follow these heuristics, you won't get punished if it fails. If okay. you don't follow the heuristics, you will be. Because, and we do there's lots of this in safety. So we have a rule about when you can break the rules. And then you have to follow heuristics because we've done a lot of work, which has shown the main cause of mental breakdown in emergency services is the safety regulation that's not the job. Because the safety regulations have been developed on the assumption that incidents are at the center of a normal distribution. Whereas in practice, people are in the tail of the Pareto distribution. So the rules actually create nonsensical constraints. 
And you basically say, yeah, if this happens, then you break it. But then here are the heuristics you follow. And I did this when I reversed diabetes. I mean, I or didn't eat my own medicine, if you want it. I created 10 heuristics that I could remember. I mean, all the stuff about, you know, it was just too hard to remember. So I made it really simple. You know, nothing with more than 5% sugar, only, only sweet potatoes. You, you end up with these very simple rules and you can just remember them, apply them, and then you can handle uncertainty. And that is a natural human tendency. We, I mean, we tend to find out, find things which work, worked out why they work from the science, then scale them. But if you don't understand the why, you can't scale a what. Yes. That's a really good advice, yeah. And I think a great way to wrap up our, our time this, uh, this afternoon and morning. So thank you so much, Professor Snowden. Is, and really very generous of you to spend some time with us. Is there anything you'd like our listeners to know about that's going on? Anything that's very important means to contact you? Uh, keep an eye on the blog. I'd say the, the EU field book is probably the biggest thing in our history because that is European Union. It's entirely written around Kinevin and Sensemaker and things like that. So keep an eye out next week because on social media and on the blog because that will be announced. And the thing I'm working on later on tonight and over the weekend is the take-on program for people who want to take up that field book and use it in companies. And you'll make so, that available on the blog and through... Yeah, we will. And, and, you know, for the Agile coaching community, that's potentially a big new market for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. All right, uh, Professor Snowden, thank you really so much. It's been tremendous uh, having the opportunity to chat with you today. Okay, thanks for that. It was fun. Yeah. Let me know when it's out. Yeah, we will, definitely. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out pragmaticlead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to pragmaticlead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.